0: Good morning, we're going to be uh, finishing up uh, Hebrews today, and and so if you uh, have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Hebrews chapter 13, and we're going to be looking at verses 20 and 21. Um, even if you have a Bible app or something like that, you can uh, join with us, uh, Hebrews chapter 13, uh, verses 20 and 21. Let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Amen. This is the Word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Thanks, Steve. And thanks be to God for the Word of God. Hey, we are finishing up, as Steve said, the book of Hebrews and how appropriate to finish up with a uh, with a benediction that the writer of Hebrews gives to the people to literally kind of encapsulate what he's been talking about for about 13 chapters. So uh, we are going to be finishing up just two verses. I know that in church world, you're, you're all like, oh, two verses is good. Pastors can talk a lot about just two verses, but two verses are good, right? Amen? You guys, you don't want to admit it, but you're pretty happy about it. All right. I'd like to pray uh, to begin and ask the Lord to kind of direct us as we hear his word. Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to be together and to to glorify your name as your gathered body. Uh, Whether we're gathered here or gathered online, we are still your body. And we want to listen for what you are doing in the word. Lord, I want to personally get out of the way and allow you to teach us from your word. Holy Spirit, we, we ask that you would come, that you would give us tender hearts to what you are teaching and saying and help us not only just listen, but do, like James says, be doers of the word. Thank you, Lord. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. I think that Christians have a self-esteem problem. I literally think that when it comes to our relationship with God, oftentimes we don't feel great about it. Let me try this little test question on you. I tried it on a number of people. Let me ask you this. How do you feel about your walk with the Lord right now? None of you did that because you're in church. But A lot of people, they'll just look at their toes, you know. They'll just look down. They're like, oh, I could be doing more, you know. I haven't been in the Word, you know. Missed church a couple of times and got this area I struggle with. Ah. Well, this benediction that Hebrews talks through at the end, that the writer of Hebrews uh, wants to pronounce over the people, is not only for the the people uh, in their day, in their letter, it's for us as well. And I believe it will begin to speak over us truth, that will help us have the opportunity to step into everything that God has us. And this issue that we have will begin to evaporate and be destroyed by the truth. So I want to look at the benediction, but before we start talking about a benediction, I want to talk about what a benediction is. We throw that word around quite a bit. We end our services with the benediction. The the pastor says a benediction, but what's a benediction? It's simply asking for a blessing of God, a divine blessing for help. At the end of this book, the writer of Hebrews is asking something so that he can basically hit them at the end of his book with all the truths of what he's been teaching them, guiding them, hopefully, to walk out this faith with power and strength. I want to talk about the structure of a benediction. I was reading a commentary, and there's a real complicated structure. Apparently, there's a lot of structure that relates to benedictions in the New Testament. I won't bore you with all that, but I started thinking, well, that's way too complicated. I'm kind of a simple guy, I broke it down into three parts. There are three parts to this uh, asking for, for a blessing, the benediction. The first part is the reason. The reason you ask the, the benediction, uh, the blessing from God is because he is the one who can execute. It's divine help that you need not anything else. It's not based on the person who, uh, who prays the prayer. It's based on the power and the glory and the might of the one to whom it's prayed and the request is made of. Of this description, the reason for the hope and the prayer that the, the writer of Hebrews gives us is none other than God himself. And he gives four powerful descriptors of God. First of all, he is the producer of peace. It starts off by saying, now may the God of peace, and he stops right there and says, now may the God of peace. The first attribute he uses is peace. All peace flows out of peace with God. There's a verse out of uh, Colossians chapter 1 that talks about the peace of and the way it is one, in chapter 1, verse 20, it's talking about Jesus, and it says, And through him, to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. Here it is, making peace by the blood of the cross. So we see that, that Jesus Christ made peace by his sacrifice. You see, part of our issue with our relationship with God is that we know we are sinners. They needed to know that they have peace with God in Jesus Christ. If anything you get out of the letter of Hebrews is that we can have peace with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. They needed to know it, and we needed to know that God is a God that produces peace. The second thing it says about God is that he is the Resurrector. It says that the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. There's two times in this, these two verses, actually in this one verse, that things are said that the writer of Hebrews hasn't said yet. He's using this language to really reinforce what God is like and how great He is. Here, he says directly that God raised Jesus from the dead. His resurrection, the author of Hebrews does not talk about the resurrection directly about Jesus Christ. He tells us that God is in Christ is, is alive and advocating He is before uh, God interceding for us. He's alive and well. So we know he's, the author believes that, but he says it here directly to reinforce that God is the Resurrector of Jesus Christ, and by the way, the Resurrector of lives. They needed to know that, and we needed, need to know that. It goes on to describe Jesus, and it says that he was raised from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, that he is the awesome, better than any anything that came before him. Anybody that comes after him can't hold a candle to him as a shepherd. And the Bible talks a lot about shepherd and sheep. I find the, the imagery very interesting because I don't know a lot about livestock, but I've heard that sheep are really stupid. They will hurt themselves. They will walk off a cliff. They will go in places. So they'll eat stuff they shouldn't eat. They are not very bright. And sheep are kind of what we are called. They needed to know they had a great shepherd. I don't know if they felt at all that they need help and direction and guidance. I know I do. And I am grateful that we have a great shepherd that's been risen from the dead. It goes on to talk. Not only is he the great shepherd, but it says that he's been raised from the dead by the blood of the eternal covenant. He's the ratifier of the eternal covenant. A ratifier is somebody that puts the covenant together and confirms it and makes it happen. God is the ratifier by the blood of the eternal covenant. What is the blood of the eternal covenant all about? You hear a lot about blood in the Old Testament, and, and even in through the book of Hebrews, it refers to the blood of Christ, refers to the blood of sacrifices. What is that all about? There's a couple of verses I want to look at if you, in your Bible. You can turn over to uh, just a page or so to, to Hebrews chapter uh, 9, and it talks about the blood in the Old Testament. It says, for when the, every command of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. In the Old Testament, the picture of what was to come was the sacrifice of calves and, and goats. And their blood was sprinkled on uh people and things to purify them. And purification is the forgiveness of sin. And it says that there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. We see that there is a picture in the Old Testament. And once a year, the high priest would take the the sin offering into the, the, the Holy of Holies and make a sacrifice with blood for the people to remove their sins for that year. But earlier in that chapter, it talks about exactly what Jesus did. It says, but when, uh, excuse me, verse 12, he entered once for all in the holy place, not by the means of blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. God worked through Jesus Christ And this covenant of blood of the eternal covenant was secured by the, the blood of Jesus Christ once and for all. It wasn't a yearly act. It was done by Jesus Christ forever. It's an eternal covenant. And when it talks about being eternal, it's forever. And it's a covenant. A covenant is a deep, committed relationship. In Christ, God has covenant with people who are in him forever and ever. He has secured the covenant. Why does the writer of Hebrews spend so much language and powerful uh, descriptors of God? Why does he start with that? Well, it's a lot like this, this illustration I had heard a long time ago was about a baby that was born, and about half of her face was covered with one of those really dark red uh, birthmarks. And the doctors and the nurses were shocked and said to the parents, oh, I'm so sorry that that happened. The parents weren't fazed at all. You see, they were believers in Jesus Christ. They knew that the, the descriptors of the world were not what what they were going to teach their children. And so as the child began to grow up, they they spoke over these children, this child, who had the the birthmark. They said to him that God loved you so much, he sent an angel and kissed your face and gave you a mark so that you would always remember that you are loved and that you are special. And they told that to the child, and they spoke that she is beautiful and wonderful and special, and especially special because of the birthmark that she has. And later in life, she is recorded to have said, when I was a little girl, I felt bad for other little girls and boys that didn't have an angel kiss on their face. You see, that illustrates something, that parents have powerful voices to speak blessing over their children. And that little girl believed in the parents' truth. Why the writer of Hebrews speaks about how awesome and great and wonderful God is, that he's the God of peace, he's the, the resurrected God, the raised Jesus, the great shepherd, who ratified the, the covenant, the eternal relationship. Why do we need to know that? Because we need to trust in, in the, the voice of the one speaking the blessing, and it cannot be better. The first part is the, the reason. The second part of the covenant, uh, the uh, benediction, is the, the request, the actual middle part, the basis, the hinge on which the, the whole benediction hangs. You don't have a benediction without asking for a a blessing, a request. In verse 21, it goes on. It says that this God who has done all these things may equip you, that God may equip us. Now, I was interested in looking at what this is, is about and you look into the original language and you try to figure out the nuances. This is a very interesting word. And so I, there's a number of verses I want to look at. I want to start that all have this word equip in it, but it gives different nuances. 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 1, verse 10 uses this word and it says, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that that all of you agree and that you, there be no division among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Now, where's equipped in there? If you look at that word right there that says, but be united, That that is the same Greek word as equipped in our verses. So, Other uh, translations will translate this this Corinthian verse as that you be reconciled. In other words, your relationship that's rocky and broken is now getting fixed and able to to be unified the way it should be. Moving on to look at in Matthew chapter uh, 4, talks about the same word, but it it is a very common word activity that they're talking about. Jesus is calling Peter, James, and John, and he says that uh, a description of our word is in one of these verses you probably would miss. Verse 21 of of chapter 4 says this, "'And going from there, he saw two other uh, brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets.'" and he called them. That word mending is the same Greek word as the basis in the Greek word that says equipped. So mending a, a net is repairing that net to be able to go out and catch fish. The third reference is in 1 uh, Timothy. And a lot of us have heard this uh, before in Timothy, because it has to do with with the uh, the word of God. I find the word the verse in Timothy. It's in chapter uh, three of it's actually Second Timothy, and it's talking about the word of God. And our word is in this verse as well. It says, "All Scripture." is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. It's translated equipped in this verse, that we are equipped for every good work. The Word of God does the equipping to enable us to be able to live out and be effective in the good works. So, if we look at at the nature of of this Word, it means that something is repaired so that it will be complete, so that it is able to accomplish its original purpose. A relationship is unified. A net catches fish. The Word of God equips us for good works. Well, we are asked by the great God in heaven to be equipped. And we'll see the result in a minute, but to be equipped. And it said that, that in that verse, it is already done. The equipping is already done in the work of God. So you may think, well, my, my life is, is, is marred by where I came from. that I had sin in my life and that I was a, a sinner far away from God and I have issues and challenges in my life. And if you're not okay with that, then you're probably in a situation where you say, I'm always trying to make up for that loss. But if we get to a point and we understand that God had to bring us from a distance, that we were hopelessly, without help, unable to do anything pleasing to God. That's the doctrine of total depravity, that we are unable to please God, that if you're uncomfortable with that, then you don't understand the gospel. Because God reached into our world and equipped us by redeeming us to be able to be used of Him. There was a quote that uh, Eddie, uh, my friend, shared in the teaching team by a man by the uh, name of Steve Brown. He's a Christian radio host, said this, when it comes to Christian growth, your sin is your greatest gift when you know it, and your good works are your greatest enemy when you know it. You see, if we don't understand and we don't believe that that we were hopelessly broken and redeemed by a wonderful, great God, then we are missing it. But if we do understand it, we understand that God has brought us from a place we could never get from, made us holy where we could never be, to be in relationship to a God that is so great and awesome that we could never do it, that we've missed the very essence of the gospel. But if we do understand that, it is a gift to us to say yes. And then if we don't understand that we spend all of our time working at trying to be that person that we could never be, hoping God will think we've done enough There's never enough good works to overturn the distance between you and a holy God. Never. As they talk about the equipping, it says that we are equipped to do... uh, We are equipped with every good. Everything good is doing the equipping... I was looking around and thinking, well, what does that mean? How does good equip us? A couple of scriptures, also out of uh, uh, Hebrews 9, it says a verse we read earlier, but the first verse before, it says this, but when Christ appeared as high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of creation, he entered once for all, into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an internal redemption. You say, well, he became the high priest of the good things. What are the good things that he's the high priest of? It's all the promises in the gospel that those who are far off are now made near. Those who are horribly lost in sin have the victory in sin. Somebody that is destined for the wrath of God is in now the family of God and will live with him forever. It's the great promises in the gospel that he has secured that it equips us to be able to to do what we were intended to do. One more verse that also talks about the good things, chapter 10, verse 1 of Hebrews says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are often offered continually every year, make perfect those who draw near." The comparison is the Old Testament, Old Way, Old Covenant, and the blood sacrifices that had to be, keep being made because they did not work a complete work. It is not until the, the blood of Jesus, the sacrifice of Jesus, So it is the very sacrifice of Jesus that equips us to be able to do the good work. It is what actually, literally, fixes us to be fit for doing what he wants us to do. So now we come to the third part of the benediction or the request for the blessing, and it is the result. What is the author of Hebrew asking the great God for? To be equipped to what end? It goes on to to tell us, it says, we are equipped with every good thing that you may do His will. We are able to do His will. Before, we had no chance of being able to do that. But now we are able to do His will, and we make it kind of complicated. A friend of mine came up after, uh, after service, and he had one of those things that are kind of complicated to listen and to hear and to know the will of the Lord. He, he has something that might be an opportunity. Oh, he doesn't know whether he take that opportunity or not take that opportunity. Now, that might be a little more difficult. But day in, day out, moment by moment, most of what we do, 90% of what we do, say, think, and, and act like is known to us. When we drive down the road, for example... And the way we interact with fellow commuters, we pretty much know whether we're doing the will of the Lord or not. We definitely know whether they are, right? That's a joke. In the way I treat my children, in the way I treat my spouse, in what I think and what I say, we kind of have the idea of what the will of the Lord is this blessing is telling us the great God has has already equipped us through His sacrifices and through His great promises. He's equipped us to be able to live out His will. And it goes on to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ. Not only can we do His will, but we can do that which is pleasing. But it says that he is working that which is pleasing through Jesus Christ. There's a scripture in Philippians that really helps me understand this. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, it says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is God working in us to give us the will and to work out his good pleasure in us. It is the same language. But you might be a little confused, and I read that verse of 12 as well, or I guess it's 11, that says that... Paul says, well, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, but God is working to give you the will and to work out his good pleasure. Well, which one is it, Paul? Literally, we cannot do God's will. We cannot do that which is pleasing without his empowerment. And so the request is that we are doing what is pleasing to him, but it is God working in us through Jesus Christ. So even if we think we're doing, I'm doing all this in my own strength, it is impossible. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling really, literally by God working it out in us and us responding to what he's already doing The last part of this verse I love. It's the last part of the benediction. It says that, that he's working through us in Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And we sang an amen song. That means I agree, so be it. Not only do we do what his will and what's pleasing to him, but that brings glory to God. Our lives can bring glory to God. You see, I believe that when we are are confronted with truth like this, we need to do something with it. What do we do with this? What do we do with this awesome prayer That is a request for a blessing from God. Well, it made me think about about something that that was a little more practical because, like I said, I'm pretty simple. What do I do with this, this truth? It's kind of like what I learned when I started running. I was in Olympia. I was 55 years old, and I had made a bet with a fellow Christian well, it wasn't about money but it was about service and i didn't mind losing but i wanted to give it the old college try and it had to do with how much the scale moved on when you stepped on it i wanted to cheat a little bit but that didn't seem very christian so i said i better do something better so i started running I said my knees are hurting anyways i might as well start running and i found out very quickly After two or three uh, weeks of working out and running, I realized, you know what limits you is not your legs and how strong you are, how far you can run. It is your head. What you believe you can do, within reason, you can do. I didn't say I believe I can run a marathon. But one day, I wanted to break a certain pace. And it's so slow. I won't tell you what pace it was, but it was faster than I had ever run. And I thought, I wonder how I can do this. So I got out my, uh, my car and I got ready and I, and I go, you know what? I'm going to break that, that mile, minute mile. I'm going to do that. I'm going to get past. I'm going to run fast enough so that I break into this, this like, gigantic number. And that's all I did. And after I ran my 3.3 miles, I had beat that time. Why? One reason. I said, I believe I can do it. And there was something that changed in me that the result was the belief came true. Now, it was a, a silly goal but it taught me something about belief. And as we talked about what do we do with this, the first thing came to my mind and the teaching team's mind is believe it. This God, who is the God of peace to you and to me, who raises people from the dead and redeems them, who has raised Jesus, who is the great shepherd to us, who is the one who is responsible for enacting and empowering the eternal covenant through the blood of Jesus, the eternal relationship that he has with us. Believe it. That little girl with the, the mark, the birthmark on her face believed her parents. We need to believe that God is who He is; these those wonderful things, and that He has already equipped us to do His will, what is pleasing, and to bring Him glory. And as we talked about it further on the teaching team, Wes, one of the guys said, "I think we also need to lean into it." I thought that was great. Lean into. It. What does that mean? If you believe something you naturally do something in light of that. When I believed, when I said to myself, I believe I can break that that minute mark. You know what I did? I didn't really change how I ran. I still ran and walked like I normally did. I still used the same program in my ears. But what I did was something clicked in me and I said, well, what do I need to do if I really believe I can run faster? I don't know. But I know that that I need to keep a better pace. And I know that if my legs are burning, I'm probably pushing myself. So that's what I did. I acted. I lent into the belief, and I acted in light with it. When we talk about that we believe this, about the equipping God, who's already done the equipping, that I can act and believe and live and think things that are pleasing and do these things then I will be affected by them now if I don't happen to have some great time with Lisa my wife you know she leaves early or I leave early and we're kind of like ships in the night most married people have had those days like that. I don't assume that my relationship with with lisa is terrible because i haven't had a chance to catch up with her then why would we think that about god one of the ways we can lean into it is start believing that the significance of our relationship with god is held in god's hands not mine i can't thwart the wonderful work of god by the sin in my life or by not, not having a Bible study today or by getting mad at my kids or something. I want to lean into what the Bible tells me is that He is in charge of my destiny, not me. But if I lean into it and I find something that is in the way of my relationship with God, all I need to do is... It's, exercise the gift of repentance and remove it and get back to a place of saying, man, I'm glad that's out of the way, Lord. But barring that, you should just assume that we are okay, that we believe God is the great God in heaven and that he has literally equipped us to be able to do his will and what's pleasing to him and to glorify him believe that and lean into it and next time somebody says how's your walk with jesus say it's great because of him let's pray jesus we want to express our love and appreciation to you there's nothing we could do to make you love us more and nothing we can do to make you love us less. We thank you that you have equipped us, that you did the work and you've already done it. We believe it and we lean into it, Lord. And we even need your help. Like Philippians says, to give us the will, not just to have the empowerment of the good works. So, Lord, we will trust you. We believe you, and we will walk in our lives knowing that is true and responding to you. And I pray for my friends as much as I pray for myself that in our lives, through this process, that you get the glory. It's in the wonderful, powerful name of our great shepherd, Jesus. Amen.